so we're really glad to be here. Um, I say this every week at RUF. At RUF, we believe you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And at the same time, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. And what that means is there's this fundamental tendency in the human heart uh, that we, we think that we relate to God based on our record, whether it's our goodness or our badness. Uh, when we're feeling like we're doing great, we might be tempted to think God is lucky to have us. Uh, when we feel like we're doing terrible, we might be tempted to think that God doesn't want anything to do with us. Uh, but the gospel is that because of what Jesus has done in reconciling us to God, we are safe and secure and enjoy eternal life in him. And so every semester in RUF, we go through a uh, teaching series. Uh, usually we go through a book of the Bible. Uh, can you go back one slide, maybe? See this image here? Um, sorry if that's confusing. So we're actually going through, uh, instead of going through a specific book of the Bible or a theme from the Bible, we're going to be looking at this ancient document called the Apostles' Creed. Uh, maybe some of you have heard of the Apostles' Creed. It's kind of like this ancient document. Uh, people think it came from around the 3rd or the 4th century. And it's essentially just a summary of Christian belief. It's a summary of what the Bible says. Uh, it's been believed, uh, scholars like to say it this way, it's been believed everywhere. So all over the world, east, west, north, south, always, um, it's been unchanging throughout and by all. So this is the faith, the, the, the core of the Christian faith. So we're going to be looking at that this semester. Um, and if you could go ahead another slide. We're going to go, I've got the Apostles' Creed up here. I'm just going to read it for us. Sorry, I'm making this confusing. Oh, oh. All right, there it is, Apostles' Creed. Okay, so I'm just going to read through this for us, because uh, this is kind of going to frame what we're doing for the semester. So the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So this is the Apostles' Creed. And every week uh, through this semester, we are going to be looking at a line of the Apostles' Creed and then looking at a specific passage of Scripture that kind of unpacks this line from the Apostles' Creed. And so we're calling this series A Better Story. A Better Story. And it's my hope that if you stick with us this semester, uh, you're going to see that the Apostles' Creed, it tells us a better story about ourselves and about the world that we live in. Uh, it's a story that accounts for both our glory, like the things that we love about ourselves, and our shame, the things that we don't want to talk about. It's a story that gives us resilience in the presence, and it's a story that gives us sure hope for the future. And you might be thinking, as I'm talking about a uh, story, like we're saying, I'm saying here that we need a better story. You might be thinking, why do we need a story, period, much less a better one? Like, what's the point? Why do we need a new story? Um, I think we need a new story because really everything that we do is informed by the story that we see ourselves as a part of. Everything we do is informed by the story that we see ourselves as part of. Uh, to take a kind of intensely local example here, um, some of you, if you've gone to Memorial Stadium, uh, you see on the outside that there is actually there is a creed on the outside of Memorial Stadium. And every fan walking into Memorial Stadium 
sees this. It says, through these gates, pass the greatest fans in college football. Through these gates, pass the greatest fan in college football. What is that? That is a story. It's a story. It's a story that tells us who we are. It's a story that tells us what we're about. We're about Husker football. It's a story that, that tells us what we should care about. It's a story that motivates us to do crazy things like buying up a ton of tickets so that we kind of make this uh, sellout streak last, even though it's probably died long ago. Uh, it's a story that kind of gets us excited about Husker football every year, even if we know that it's maybe going to let us down. Uh, it's a story that makes us think that really this is the year that Scott Frost is going to put it together. He's going to do it. He's going to take us to the promised land. And I sincerely hope that that happens. But what I'm trying to point out here is that stories motivate what we do. And this storied nature of our lives, it's not just true in sports, but it's true in everything that we do. The way that we live our lives, it's a product of the story that we see ourselves as a part of. So this semester, I just want to ask you to consider the Christian story. Consider the Christian story as it's summarized in the Apostles' Creed. We're going to look at this week by week. So to kick off our series, I just want to focus on the words that are repeated three times in the Apostles' Creed. And as I was reading through it, you might have picked up on this. It says, I believe, three times, says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, and I believe in the Holy Spirit. What do you think of when you hear that word, believe? What does it mean to believe? Uh, some of us, when we hear that, we might be thinking of kind of the, the Christianese term, believer, I don't know if you've ever been in like a Christian space where everybody refers to themselves as a believer, like not as a Christian. Um, that's okay, but it's just like it's a very specific way to refer to yourself. And it probably doesn't make sense to someone who's not a Christian, right? Or maybe you think of, uh, maybe this is just me, but you think of Justin Bieber's 2012 album, Believe. It's in the name. Uh, it's got Boyfriend on there. It's a great song. It holds up. Uh, some of us might think of Ted Lasso like kind of putting the, the plaque that says believe up on the wall. Others of us might kind of balk at this idea, this language of belief, because believing, having faith in something, it seems kind of anti-reason. It seems kind of anti-science. Like, why would I need to believe in something? I've got facts. I don't need to believe in anything. And some of us might feel completely uncertain. We might not know what to think when we hear this language of belief. So for all of us together tonight, I just want to ask this question. What does it mean to believe? What does it mean to believe? And we're going to consider this kind of under two headings. First, an unbelieving generation. And second, a believing response. So an unbelieving generation, a believing response. Uh, I'm going to pause and pray for us real quick, and then we can get started. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this opportunity to get together. Uh, I'm really thankful for, um, yeah, just each one of these students coming out here. Um, some of them for the first time coming to something like RUF. Uh, Lord, it takes a lot of courage to step into a new space where you don't know anyone and you're uncertain of whether you're going to be welcomed. So I thank you um, for the new friends that we see here tonight. I thank, thank you also for those of us who are returning who've been here a lot uh, I do pray that you would speak to us, Lord, through your word, that you would tell us who we are, uh, that you would tell us how we relate to you, um, Lord, that you would give us sure hope. Lord, we need your spirit to come and to breathe life into us, so I pray that you would do that. All these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first off, an unbelieving generation, an unbelieving generation. So what's going on here in this passage uh, that Ellie just read for us? 
So we see at the beginning that Jesus has been gone. He's been gone on a retreat with a couple of his disciples. And so he comes down the mountain with his disciples, and he sees some sort of altercation happening between uh, the rest of his disciples and a group called the scribes. Uh, The scribes were kind of the religious experts of the day, the most educated people, the smartest people. So there's this big argument going on, and Jesus comes up to them and he asks, what's happening? Like, what's going on here? Why are you arguing? And so a man in the crowd, we see this in verse 17, comes up to him and says, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I ask your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. So there's a pretty kind of like gnarly scene going on here. Like we've got a whole crowd of people We've got this, this boy, we don't really know what age he was, but this, this child, we can assume, who has this pretty crazy physical ailment going on. Uh, the passage tells us it's because he has a spirit that makes him mute. Um, it's referred to as an unclean spirit later on. It's referring to, to demon possession. Uh, I recognize that that might be a little bit of a weird thing to kind of jump out of the gate with. Um, so if that's an issue for you, I would love to talk to you about that. Unfortunately, that's not exactly what we're talking about in this sermon tonight, but if you want to follow up on that, I would love to chat with you about that, because honestly, it freaks me out a little bit too. Um, so, but that's not the, kind of the point of what we're talking about tonight. But so there's just this crazy scene going on, and you have the scribes and the disciples who have kind of turned this into an argument. So they're arguing back and forth. The scribes are, kind of, are probably making fun of the disciples. The disciples are feeling humiliated because they couldn't cast out this demon. And so they're just going back and forth. And all the while, you have this father sitting there with his, his sick and scared child. So that's what Jesus walks up to. And this leads Jesus to this judgment in verse 19. He says to them, O faithless generation, or if you have the NIV, it says unbelieving. O unbelieving generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? So Jesus, when he sees this scene, he's clearly put pretty like exasperated. Like, he's over it. He's like, how long am I going to have to deal with this? Like, all of you are not believing. So I think this kind of begs the question, why? Like, why don't these people believe? What was it about believing that was difficult for them? What made belief hard for all of these people? And I think as we look at this, I think we're going to kind of get a window into what might make belief hard for us now. So let's just look at the different people in this passage. So first, we see the disciples. As I said, the disciples, they're they're down. They've tried to cast this unclean spirit out of this man, and they failed. So right now, the the disciples are completely humiliated. So not only have they failed at something that they thought they could do, uh, they failed at something they thought they could do in front of, like, their biggest enemies, in front of the people that hated them the most. It's the worst possible failure that they could have. And this hits them pretty deeply because if you've read the Gospel of Mark or if you've read the Gospels, you know that Jesus actually, he does give them authority to do this exact sort of thing. He gives them authority over unclean spirits earlier in the Gospel of Mark, just three chapters earlier. But here, for some reason, they can't exercise that authority. It didn't work out. So they're humiliated. And what was the reason for their failure? Why did they fail? Why were they not able to have authority over this unclean spirit? Uh, They ask Jesus this exact question later in the passage, and he says at the end in verse 29, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So what's Jesus saying there? 
Uh, Jesus is saying that this sort of thing, this sort of thing cannot happen apart from dependence on me. Because that's what prayer is. Prayer is depending on God. So he's pointing out to the disciples, your failure, it was a result of your self-reliance. It was a result of your competence. You walked up to this, to this boy who was struggling, rolled up your sleeves and said, don't worry, I got this. And he's saying, and that is why you failed. You see, the disciples, they were too competent for Jesus. They had it all figured out. And that's why they struggled to believe. But next, what about the scribes? The scribes, so we mentioned a couple times they were the religious experts of the day. Uh, to say that the scribes are enjoying this interaction with the disciples would be an understatement. Uh, they are really enjoying Like, it is the most delicious thing in the world for them that the disciples tried to do something awesome and failed spectacularly. Like, they are loving this. You can kind of imagine them coming up and be like, oh, you couldn't cast out the spirit? Didn't work out for you guys? You guys should try it again. That was really cool when you tried to do that. God, you guys are such idiots. You're seriously following this homeless rabbi. Like, what are you doing? Like, they're really rubbing it in. See, the scribes, when they look at someone like the disciples and when they look at Jesus, it's, it's their intellect really keeps them from having a category for Jesus. They know everything. They've got everything figured out. They've read every book. Nothing that you would say could surprise them. See, the scribes, they, I think they see themselves as too smart for Jesus. They're too smart. They don't want to be surprised by Jesus. And that's why they struggle to believe. But they're not the only people in this passage. We see this father, this father who brings his child to Jesus. So the person kind of lost in the disagreement between kind of like the do-it-all disciples and then the know-it-all scribes is this man who has brought his son. And I want to imagine, uh, I want to kind of like think about what this guy's life has been like. So he describes his son has this unclean spirit that causes all of these terrible things. He's watched his child suffer profoundly his whole life. Can you imagine what that would be like as a parent? I can tell you, like, I have a one-year-old who just left. She was in here earlier. But the first time that she fell, um, I cried. And I cried long after she stopped crying because it was so heartbreaking. It was so heartbreaking to watch her hurt and to not be able to do anything about it. Now imagine that multiplied by like 50 billion. That's what this father is dealing with. He's seen his son suffer his whole life, and no one can do anything about it. And then he hears about Jesus. He hears about Jesus and and Jesus' disciples who are traveling all around the world, or the known world at that time, and healing people. What do you think, how do you think that hits someone like him? You gotta imagine initially he's probably like, guarded. He doesn't want to hope too much because he's seen a lot. He doesn't want his hopes to be let down. But then eventually we see that he decides he's going to bring his son to Jesus and he's going to see if Jesus can help him. He's letting himself hope. But ultimately he's let down. He's let down. He comes and he brings his boy to the disciples and they can't do anything for him. So not only has this man been watching his son suffer, he's also now dealing with the fact that he has been let down by Jesus' closest friends. He's been let down by a whole bunch of Christians. They've failed him. You see, this is a wounded man. 
This is a man who has seen a lot of suffering. This is a man who has been sinned against. And he struggles to believe. I mean, you can see it in what he says to Jesus. He says, I believe it's in verse 22. He says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. When he says that, it's as if he's saying, it's like, you know, I mean, I don't know, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. See, you can tell he's not certain. What he's seen from the disciples, he's seen them fail. He had his hopes up and they were dashed. And so he doesn't really know what to do with Jesus. You see, his wounds made him waver in his belief. This man may have been feeling, you know, I think I'm too wounded for Jesus. I don't know that I, I don't know that I trust him. I don't know that I want to. So Jesus is concise in his judgment of everyone in this story. He, he refers to everyone in this story as an unbelieving generation. But even as we are walking through it, I just want you to see the different reason for why folks don't believe. The different reasons. It's not so simple as some people don't believe because they just don't want to. There are a lot of reasons why belief can be difficult. I mean, the disciples, the people closest to Jesus, they didn't believe because they thought that they could handle it on their own. They thought, they wanted to, they thought that Jesus wanted him to do good things for him. But then they failed. And then they had an identity crisis. Who am I? Who am I if I'm not doing good, good things for Jesus? Have you ever thought that before? Who am I if I'm not crushing it for Jesus? But then there's the scribes, the smartest people of the day. They didn't believe because they thought they had it all figured out. They were too smart for Jesus. They'd read all the books. They'd considered all of the doubts. And they had, they, they had a faith that really wasn't even actually a faith. It was just they knew everything. They had all the facts. And then, of course, there's this father, the man who's seen so much. He struggled to believe because of what he'd seen, both in the suffering of his son and also in the ways that he was let down by Jesus' followers. And so as we start this series on the Apostles' Creed that has, again, I believe, is in it three times, I just want to put it on your radar that belief is difficult. I just want to put it on your radar that it's not this like simple thing. Maybe you've seen, uh, seen Elf or something like that. An Elf, there's kind of the end scene where they're trying to get Santa's sleigh to fly, and uh, the dad is not singing because there's not enough Christmas spirit, something like that. And his son basically harasses him. You've got to start singing. You've got to believe, otherwise the sleigh is not going to fly. And he just does it. And it's like, that's, it's sweet, but also it's like, if only it were that simple. It's not that easy. I just want to put it on your radar that there are various reasons why belief may be difficult for you. But I also want to submit to you that it's worth it. That it's worth it, and also that it's reasonable to believe. So let's look at this second response here. We see a believing response in the second part of this passage. So Jesus doesn't stop with this diagnosis of unbelief. Instead, he issues a challenge to believe. A challenge to believe. So he's heard the father's wavering faith, and he says to him in verse 23, he says, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. So the father had just said, If you can do anything, like please help. And Jesus says, If you can. What is Jesus saying here? Uh, I think it's unfortunate. This verse has really been taken out of context, and I think it's been used in really harmful ways. Uh, When you say things like, All things are possible for one who believes. Um, This has been told to people who are very sick. Uh, If you just believe, then you'll be better. It's been told to people who are very poor. If you just believe, then you're going to become very rich. 
That's not actually what this passage is meant to do. And that's actually, that's an abusive way to use this passage of scripture. You see, what Jesus is doing here is he's giving a context-specific challenge to this man. It's as if he's saying to him, you know, it's not a question of whether I can do it. I can do it, and I will do it. The question is, will you believe? Will you believe because all things are possible for one who believes? But again, what does Jesus mean by believing? What does he mean by believing? Does he mean that he wants this man to be intellectually certain? It's like, I want you to be 100% certain. Does he mean he wants him to deny any reality of doubt in his life? Does he mean he wants this man to kind of like prove to himself that he's going to be a really good Jesus follower? No, what Jesus means by belief, Jesus means receiving and resting. That's what it means to believe. It means to receive and to rest. And we see this in the father's response. The father says this remarkable thing to Jesus. He says to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. What a remarkable thing to say to God himself. What a remarkable thing. Another way of saying it is this father is saying to Jesus, I receive you. Help me to rest. It's as if he's coming up to Jesus and he's saying, Jesus, everything in my experience tells me that that I cannot rest in you. Will you help me to do that? And what does Jesus do? He helps him. He's gentle with him. Jesus heals his son and restores him. And I, I just want to step back and think for a second, like, what hasn't this man done? What hasn't he done? Uh, first, he hasn't read every single book about Jesus. He hasn't. There are tons of things that he doesn't know about Jesus. He hasn't resolved every single doubt that he has. He hasn't denied his wounds or really even worked through them yet. He hasn't started and maintained like this amazing Bible in a year reading plan. No, like what he says to Jesus is, I believe, help my unbelief. What he's doing is receiving and resting in Jesus. He is brutally honest about his doubts, and yet he holds on to Jesus in the midst of them. This is what it means to believe. It it means to receive and to rest in Jesus alone. And I think we see from this that that this man, he doesn't have to have, he doesn't have to believe in his own belief. I realize that's a very confusing thing to say. But what I mean by that is he doesn't have to believe that he has a very strong faith. In fact, he's very honest with Jesus about that. He says, I believe, help me to believe more. That's basically saying, I have some doubts. But see, it's not the strength of his faith that saves him. It's not the strength of his faith that brings Jesus near to him. It's the object of his faith. His faith is in Jesus, and he's secure. So think about it this way. Um, As we're thinking about belief, what does this actually mean? Uh, Imagine you're in town, and you keep hearing about, like, a new restaurant, Uh, that's popping up. Uh, It's this new chef that's coming to town. He's really into molecular gastronomy, which I just learned what that is over the summer. It's pretty cool. Uh, But just imagine this guy, the chef comes to town, and he has a way of making banana taste like pork belly. Uh, And it sounds crazy, but, like, it's amazing. you got to try it, right? So you have all of these friends who are telling you, you got to go try this, like, freaky banana pork belly dish. Um, and so you hear it all the time. All of your friends are telling you you got to go. They tell you where the restaurant is. Uh, they share the Yelp page with you. You look it up. It's got great reviews. 
you look at the actual dish and you're like, wow, this looks incredible. See, you've talked to all these people who have seen it, you've checked out the reviews, you've heard universally good things. You have every reason to believe that this dish is amazing. But you don't know. You don't know for sure until you try it. See, that's what Christian belief is like. It's not enough just to hear good things and be like, yeah, you know, Jesus sounds great. It's not enough to just like know a lot of good things about Jesus. It is receiving and resting in him. Christian belief is personal. It's personal. It's going to the restaurant and trying out the dish for yourself. It's personal. It doesn't require certainty. It requires trust. It doesn't require just knowing a lot of facts. It requires relationship. So how, what are we going to take away from all this? What do we, what do we kind of do with this? What can we learn from Jesus' interaction with this father? I think we can learn at least two things. Uh, first, I think we can learn that Jesus will challenge you. He will. Jesus will challenge you. Belief in him will require a response from the real you. Not just a response from, you know, kind of the you that you project. It's going to require a response from the real you. See, this father easily could have just said, you know, I believe. Please heal my son, Jesus. But no, he responded as himself. He responded and said, I believe, but I'm going to be honest, I got some doubts. Help me. See, belief in Jesus requires that kind of response. See, no one can believe for you. I don't know what your story is. Maybe your story is like mine. I came from a very strong Christian family, so there was a temptation for me coming into college to think that kind of my parents' faith would carry me, uh, to kind of think that, well, you know, like I come from good Christian stock, so that must mean that I'm a Christian. Or maybe that's not your story. Maybe it's uh, a significant other who has a really strong faith that you think can carry you. But what I want to say to you here is that Jesus calls each and every one of us to believe in him. He calls us to receive him and to rest in him alone. So I want to ask, like, sincerely, what is getting in the way of that for you? What is getting in the way of responding to Jesus? Uh, For some of us, it might be that we have some pretty serious intellectual objections to Christianity. And if that's you, I want to say I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here. I hope that you can find RUF to be a safe place to ask those questions, to think through those things. I would love to meet with you and talk about that. Maybe uh, what's getting in the way for you is your kind of personal failure. Maybe you kind of have this image of yourself as a really good person, but you do something that just like really shocks you. You're like, how can I be a good person if I just did that thing? Like if anyone knew, they wouldn't want anything to do with me. I think that can keep us away from Jesus. Maybe it's your wounds. Maybe it's what's been done to you. Maybe it's what's been done to you in the name of Jesus. Maybe it's that you've had a bad experience with the church. What I want to submit to you is that Jesus wants to deal with you in that place. He wants to meet you right there. He wants to meet you as you are. So Jesus will challenge you. But second, Jesus, he will be gentle with you. He'll be gentle with you. Yes, there is a call to believe, but it's not a call to deny our pain. It's not a call to deny our doubts. It's not a call to not struggle. Remember, it is a call to receive and to rest. So I don't know, some of you might be like the temperament, you're just kind of naturally a really smiley person. If that's you, can you please teach me how to smile? I'm still working on that. Um, But some of you might have that like natural smiley temperament. And you might kind of have this idea that to be a Christian is like you have to be this like super happy person 
who has absolutely no doubts, who is just on fire for Jesus all the time. And I think it's great to be on fire for Jesus. I think it's great to smile. But, but what I want to submit to you is that you don't actually have to be that in order to be a Christian. You see, this, this man here, he came to Jesus in his raw faith. He came to Jesus and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And I think in this, in this story, we're invited to do the same thing. We're invited to come to Jesus as we actually are, not as we think we should be. Because he wants the real us. The prophet Isaiah said this about Jesus. It said, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. So I don't know where you're at. I don't know. Maybe you're feeling bruised. Maybe you're feeling weak, feeling like a candle that's just about to go out. And I want you to think about who Jesus is to you in that moment. Jesus is one who will not crush you where you're bruised. Jesus is one who will not heap shame on you and your doubts. He's not one who will heap shame on you and your questions. Jesus is one who is gentle with you. One who is understanding. He challenges you to believe, but he is also gentle with you. And as we're closing, I just want to look at what Jesus did right after this story, because I think it really kind of hits at home for us here. So right after this story, Jesus turns to his disciples and told them this. He said, I am going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill me. And when I am killed, after three days I will rise. Weird thing to say to your friends. Super weird thing to say to your friends. What was Jesus saying there? Let's remember the context here. What's happening is his disciples have just failed in a massive way, like capital F failure. Okay, they tried to do something that they couldn't do, and in so doing, they had hurt this man and his boy. They had just made an argument with these religious... It was like the scene for someone who didn't believe was hurting man comes up, religious people stage an argument. Like, that is bad PR for the Jesus movement, okay? Like, it did not look good. They have failed in a massive way they did not believe. How does Jesus respond to them? Jesus' response to them is, is telling. He says, I'm going to the cross for you. I'm going to the cross for you who just failed me. Jesus is saying that I am the one who believes, and I am going to go be treated like an unbelieving generation. I'm going to take the penalty for your unbelief. You see, Jesus, he, he went to suffer so that those of us who struggle with belief, which is all of us, will know that he is for us, that he is for us, that he is near to us. And when we receive and rest in him, we can have assurance that he is for us. We enter into relationship with the triune God. We know joy itself. We have eternal life. And that's not just a kind of a quantity. It's a quality. We have a life that is everlasting, a life that is overflowing. So I don't know where you are tonight. But I want you to know that the same Jesus who calls you to believe will be gentle to you. He will be gentle with you. So if you're here tonight and you're not sure if you're good enough to be a Christian, Jesus is calling you to receive and to rest in him alone. Not in your record, not in your goodness, not in anything else. If you're here tonight and you're not sure if your doubts might disqualify you, the questions that you have might disqualify you. Jesus wants you to receive and to rest in him alone. 
And if you're here tonight and you have no idea what you believe, you're not sure if you're, you're in on this whole Christian thing, I want to invite you to try on what it might feel like to receive and rest in Jesus. And I want to ask you, what is it that you believe in? And will that thing that you believe in die for you? Because Jesus will, and he has. Let's pray.